Well, the reading this morning, scripture reading this morning, is from 1 Timothy, once again, chapter 1, beginning at verse 16 and going through to the end of that chapter. I'll just say that again for those who want to look up um, and read themselves. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting at verse 16 through to the end. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for that. Um, it's always nice to have somebody. Try, I try to like get new people up here to read. Um, I know some of you don't love being up in front of people, so I'm not going to pressure anybody. But if you'd like to read, let me know. Um, and so as we continue our study of 1 Timothy today, we're looking at those, like Liz said, we're looking at the last few verses of chapter 1. And so far, there's been this theme that Paul has been developing through this letter. And that theme is this, what's the difference between bad doctrine and good doctrine? Because remember, a few weeks ago when we started studying 1 Timothy, uh, Paul lays out the whole main point of the letter in verses 3 and 4, which says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. There's a problem there at the church, and the problem is that they're being drawn away from the truth. They're being caught up in these false teachings. And so we've seen Paul mention some of these things that they were being drawn into, right? He's talking about these false teachings, these endless genealogies, and he's mentioning truth to correct them. We see how, to cor- how a correct understanding and correct teaching uh, leads to love. We talked about that when we first opened up First Timothy, how having good teaching is going to lead you to showing love to God and to others through a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. We talked about how the law is there to help us recognize that we need Christ to come, Right, Paul, he, in verses 9 and 10, he makes this list of different types of people that the law is for. And sometimes we can foolishly look at that list and be like, oh, well, I'm not any of those. But really, when we take a second to look at that list, we realize, actually, yeah, there's some of these different things that he lists that really apply to us. And Paul himself, he doesn't give that list. He doesn't say, here's all the list of all the bad people, and I'm not any of those, right? Paul doesn't say that. In fact, Paul tells us that he is in that list. Because in verse 15, 
He says, I, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was an amazing Christian. He did amazing things. He, is the re- he wrote most of the New Testament. He planted churches all over the Roman world, but yet Paul also did some really horrible things in his life. He wasn't perfect his whole life. And that leads us to today's passage, that idea of the fact that Paul, as the worst of sinners, was saved. So look at verses 16 and 17 again with me. It says this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So today's passage starts with the word but. And but is actually a very powerful word in scripture, right? You're reading something and then you see but, you, all, you know that, oh, whatever's coming next is going to be commenting on what just came before. And oftentimes when you see but God, it's something that God is now doing something to correct something that we've done wrong. So Paul just laid out, what is that but coming after? Well, Paul lays out this case of how he is the worst sinner, right? Verse 15 is, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Jesus just saving the worst sinner in the world is already an incredible thing, right? Like it's already mind-blowing that Jesus would be willing to save somebody who is the worst person in the world. Like that alone is just an amazing fact, that nobody is beyond salvation. I mean, that is actually just such a great truth of the gospel, isn't it? That there is nobody that's beyond salvation. Uh, That no matter how bad you are, God can still save you. Now, growing up, there was this term that was thrown around kind of jokingly at my church. I don't know if you guys have heard this. It was called fire insurance. Um, What they were saying was that basically... When you get saved, you have fire insurance because you're no longer going to hell. You're going to heaven. And right, it was just this joking term of like, oh good, we're not being punished for eternal life. We're going to live with eternal life. And honestly, if that truly was all that the gospel was, if that was really all that was about salvation was just that you have fire insurance, like that would be really cool. Like that's already an amazing thing. But the gospel isn't just that. The gospel isn't just that Jesus came and died for sinners that we could be saved. It's so that we could have a relationship with the God of the universe, right? Salvation doesn't just end with fire insurance. That's actually where the whole Christian life begins, really. There is more. There is a but there, right? It's not just that he came and he saved the worst sinner. There's a but there. There's something more to salvation, And there is a reason behind Christ coming to save the worst of the worst. And Paul puts it right there. He says says pretty explicitly why that is. It's because it's a sign for the rest of us. It's a symbol of hope, right? When somebody who does something unexpected, when somebody who overcomes an incredible odd to accomplish something, it becomes a symbol of hope for the rest of us of thinking, oh, we can do that too. That's why we love underdog stories, right? We love the stories of the people that 
are not supposed to win beating the people that are supposed to win because it shows the rest of us that, oh yeah, if we try hard, we can also overcome those same hurdles that they did. Uh, the Olympics, which is now ended, so I think this might be the last time I talk about it. So for you guys, you can probably be thankful that, oh, Shelby's going to stop mentioning the Olympics finally. But during the Olympics, a lot of these stories come out, right? That's usually the most powerful stories that come from the Olympics. It's these stories of people who overcome great odds to be able to win gold. And something like that happened. Well, a lot of things happened like that over the Olympics. But one thing that stood out to me was during the women's cycling, there was this Austrian writer. She was the only person from Austria, so she has no teammates. And if you don't know how road cycling works, you go, you ride for 147 kilometers, and the first person across the line gets the gold. That's a, now, that's a long way, but being by yourself has a whole new challenge, because usually when you're cycling, you have a team, and the team helps encourage you, the team helps pull you along, they help get, make sure that the right person gets the right place at the right time. But being by yourself, you have to do all of that by yourself. You have to encourage yourself, you have to push through all those mental limits by yourself. And so when they were going on, rather early on in the, in the race, she breaks away. She and a few other people break away from the group, and that's typical. So there's people that go up, but usually what happens is the rest of the group, because it's a larger group, it's easier for them to get going catch up eventually. But for over 40 kilometers, people fell away until she was by herself. And for 40 kilometers, she kept the lead. In fact, she was so far ahead of other people that the rest of the group didn't even know that she was there. Because she was an unknown writer. She, nobody expected this Austrian writer to be able to win gold. Everybody thought it was going to be this Dutch team, that they were the team that won the world you know, the world cycling, like, uh, road race beforehand. They were expecting them, one of them, to get gold. In fact, they were leading the pack going into the final stretch. And when the, one of the lead Dutch riders passed and got silver, she actually thought she got gold because nobody knew that this unknown Austrian rider was a minute ahead of everybody else in passing the finish line. And so that same idea of somebody who is unknown, somebody who you would think could never do it, accomplishing something great, is the same reason why Paul says he was saved. Because he was somebody that people would look at and say, there's no way he would be saved. There's no way that he would follow God. Because he persecuted Christians. He, he was the one that was advocating for them to be killed. And yet he, the worst of the worst, becomes saved. And I love the fact that he points out that it's not just a symbol of hope, but it's a sign of Jesus' perfect patience for the rest of us who are to believe. And, or if you're reading the extended version, which is Rachel's favorite version, it says Jesus' unlimited patience. Paul's life shows just how incredible our Savior's patience is. That if he is willing to be patient with Paul, the worst of the worst, he's willing to be patient with you. Isn't that such a great thing? Because I know I'm thankful for the patience of Christ because I am so thankful he's willing to put up with my stupidity because <laughs> otherwise I would have failed a long time ago. Because you see, when I was in uni, I was in uni to study film and I told God that I knew what I was going to do with my life. I said, I was going to become rich and famous. That was my plan. 
Now, I know I, I dress really cool on Sundays, and, and I'm up here, but I can tell you pretty confidently that I am not rich nor famous. Um, so there's obviously God had a different plan. But here's the thing. When I was in uni, I remember praying to God and being like, I want to work in Hollywood. I want to make movies. I don't want to do whatever you have for me. Because I didn't want to, I realize now, at the time I probably wouldn't have said this, but I was wanting to live a life that was glorifying to me, not glorifying to God. I actually had, and I, like I said, I actually prayed to God. I actually remember sitting in my dorm room over 10 years ago now with praying to God saying, I know that if I give my life to you, that you're going to make me do something I don't want to do, like work at a church or be a missionary. I specifically, those were the two things I told him that I was not going to do. That I knew that if he get, took control of my life, that's what was going to happen, and I'm not going to let him do that. And so as somebody who is now standing in front of you, teaching from the Bible, helping run a church service, and living in a country that I didn't grow up in, obviously God had better plans, and God had to get a hold of my life. And I'm so thankful for God's perfect, unlimited patience. Because that's what he had to have to get me through that. I was so stubborn. I pushed back so much, and yet God was patient with me. And so as I look and I reflect on this verse, and I look at how Paul is an example of God's patience, an example of Jesus' patience, I realize that my life is also an example as well. It's different circumstances, right? I did not go around trying to persecute the church or arresting people. Um, but still that same, the same story for both of us, that we were both people that really were stubborn, fighting against God, and he had to do stuff to get control of our lives. He had to be patient with us so that we could come to know him. And that leads me to one of the two main points. I have two main points I want to leave you guys with this morning uh, as the infamous like, way of saying this. If you don't hear anything else, please hear these two things. Um, or, if you're, or as Joel likes to say, if you take notes, here's, here's what you need to write down. The first point is, is that your life is the best tool for sharing the gospel with others and to remind you of how much you are loved by your creator. Your life is the best tool for sharing the gospel and to remind you how you're loved by your creator. Because you see, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to trying to bring people into salvation, bring them into the kingdom, there is a lot of methods and tools out there. Um, I don't know if you've heard of these, uh, one method that's kind of famous is called the Romans Road. It's basically you take somebody and you lead them down several verses in Romans. You start with showing them how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You show them how the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus' Son. You show them how there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you end with, if you, um, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and God raised them from the dead, you can be saved, right? That's a, that's a great way. You just lead them through several verses starting in, at the beginning of Romans going all the way through. There's another method that I remember that the Billy Graham Association uh, shared 
uh, when I was, I went to like this meeting where they were giving some tips on how to share the gospel. They said, well, if you have an opportunity, have a pen, draw this on a napkin or a piece of paper. Basically, you start out, you draw two lines with a gap in between. On one line, you draw a little person and you say, that's humans. On the other line, you draw, you say, you write God and you show how there's a space between humans and God. And then you should say, well, there's no way for the humans to get to where God is because of the gap. But then you tell them how Jesus died on a cross and then you start drawing in the cross and you show how the cross bridges that gap. That because of what Jesus did, humans can now have a relationship with God. And both of those ways are great ways to share the gospel. But if that's all you do, you're missing out on actually what's the best tool or what's the best, really the best tool you have in your pocket when you're sharing the gospel, and that is your story. Like, it's great to lead somebody through that. They're all, those are all very biblical ways of sharing the gospel. But if you don't start with your story, or if you don't somehow tie it into how God moved you across that gap, how God led you down that Roman road, then it's not gonna touch their lives. People love hearing how God has changed people. And so that's what I want to share with you is that our stories can become like the story of Paul, a symbol of hope. And the best part is when you start sharing these stories is that it's not just going to bless the person that hears it. It's going to also bless you as somebody who's sharing it. As Paul reminded Philemon and when he wrote a letter to him, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ Jesus. See, what Paul said there is that when we share our faith, it builds up the knowledge of all the good things God has done for us. When I shared that story about how me being in uni and trying to tell God what, that I knew better, that reminds me of how God knows better. It reminds me of all the amazing things God has done since I graduated how I've met my wife, Rachel, how we moved over across the country, how we even came to the UK and met some amazing people like you guys here. Like those, none of that would have happened if I had my way. And so sharing my story helps me not only draw other people into what God has done, but it also reminds me of what God has done. Because the hard truth of life is that we're gonna go through some tough times. So I've shared with some of you before we got started, this week has been a tough time. And when we're in the middle of these tough times, it's really easy to forget what God has done. And so we need to be, even more when life is hard, be sharing what God has done for us because that's gonna help us remember that we do have a God that loves us. We do have a God that's taking care of us. This isn't a call to stuff your feelings. In fact, it's, you should be sharing those feelings, sharing them with God, letting him know how you feel, but at the same time, remembering what he has done. I think of Jeremiah, who wrote a whole book called Lamentations, right? A whole book talking about all the horrible things that are happening to the people in Jerusalem as he's looking around and he's just so, just, He's just weeping and mourning over what is happening. But literally in the middle of that book, in the middle of all of that, he says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so 
as people who are, who are saved because we have a God who has a tremendous amount of patience, let's share that with other people. Let's be a people that are willing to tell other people our story, willing to share how God has been patient with us because that will let them know that God can be patient with them. You don't have to use fancy words or memorized methods or anything like that. You don't need to be like, oh wait, I don't have a tract on me or something like that or let me like pull up these specific verses. You just gotta share your story. Because your story is the best way to bring people to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So that was the first point. The first point is that your life, your story, is one of the best ways to share the gospel and also to remind you of how you are loved by your creator. And the second point is that we need to be diligent, diligent in confronting people who are teaching false doctrine. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. It says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may may learn not to blaspheme. So remember this charge, the charge that Paul is referring to, is the same charge that we talked about in verse 3. It's, that Timothy is there to confront these false teachers. And I also think it's really interesting, there's this little note that it's in accordance to the prophecies that were made about Timothy. Now, we're not given specifics about what those prophecies are. It's always something that whenever I read that, I'm like, oh, I wish I could just know like that it said somewhere, these are the specific things. But we, know, we do get some clues. Uh, the fact that in chapter four of First Timothy, Verse 14 says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so we know that it seems that when there was a council of elders, probably when they were commissioning Timothy to go out and be with Paul, they laid his hand, their hands on him and somebody prophesied over them. And because Timothy challenging false teachers seems to be in accordance with the... Um, in accordance with challenging the false teachers, in accordance with the prophecy, it's probably something tied to that as well. So we get a quick bit of advice from Paul on how, how you are supposed to do that, how you are, as he puts it, wage warfare against people who have started to teach false doctrines. And he says you do it by using faith and a good conscience. Which, when you remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, makes sense because Paul said that's literally what comes out of good teaching is that you would have a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. But how do these things apply to correcting false doctrine or bad teaching? Well, the first one's pretty self-explanatory. If you're going to stand up against somebody who is teaching something, well, you need to believe, you need to have faith in what you believe, what you are correcting them, right? Because they obviously have faith in what they're teaching, or at least they appear to have faith in what they're teaching, so if you go up and try to teach somebody what, or try to correct somebody, like how can you correct them if you don't believe in what even you're saying? Like I watched this documentary a while ago on people who believe in flat earth and the amount of faith that people, those people have in the view that the earth is flat is staggering. In fact, I would say that some of them probably have more faith in the view that the earth is flat 
than some Christians do in the gospel of Christ. Because what I saw in that documentary and what I often find out is that somebody who believes in that, a flat earth, seems to have no fear to share that with somebody. They have no fear to share their view with somebody else. Yet many of us as Christians, and I include myself in this because I know I fall to this, pray to this all the time, sometimes get timid to share what we believe and we have the truth. We have the God who created the universe on our side, yet for some reason we feel timid to share somebody to share with somebody about what we view or believe. Yet somebody who believes the earth is flat has no fear to share with somebody. In fact, we should be the people who have no fear. And, that, and the second thing that you need to remember when correcting somebody is that you need to have a good conscience. So right, you need to first, you have to have faith in what you're teaching, but you need to have a good conscience to correct somebody because if all we do is get passionate about our faith and just start bulldozing over people, we're not going to change anything. Yes, we have truth. And yes, you could try it. You could say that we could win any argument. You could be the best person at arguing and coming up and saying, well, this is why you're wrong and this is why I'm right. But if you do that just so that you can prove yourself right, all you're doing is pumping yourself up. You're not bringing people to the Lord. You're not doing it out of a good conscience. Or as an old pastor of mine used to say, an argument won is a soul lost. So we need to stand firm in our truth, but we need to share it in a way that shows people love. Because remember, as Paul said earlier in this chapter of 1 Timothy, love is the result of proper teaching. And again, I'll repeat the challenge that I taught back then a few weeks ago. And that is, is that if what we're teaching, if what we're studying, if what we're doing is not producing love for God and for other people, we need to re-examine what it is that we're doing. Because that should be the result of what we're doing. And as Paul puts it, when you forget that, when you are so focused on the false teachings that you, you end up causing to show not, not only are you not showing love to those around you, but he says you've shipwrecked the faith that you have. That literally your faith, your testimony is no longer good. Now, you may be thinking this is all great, Shelby, because, about showing love to other people and all that, but there is a verse at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1 that doesn't sound too loving. It says in verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that can sound a little weird. Like how is handing somebody over to Satan something that is loving? In fact, it, it almost sounds like Paul somehow has a connection with Satan to be like, hey, Satan, here's these people. They're now yours. Well, real quick, first that phrase, handed over to Satan, seems to be more of an idiom than a literal idea because Paul he uses this in other areas when he's talking about disciplining somebody in the church. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That's that same idea, that same phrase of handing somebody to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And second, so right, so the first reason why I say it's an idiom is because it seems like it seems to be tied to church discipline. But second, the desired result of both of these phrases, the, the, desire, the, the, the desired result of somebody being handed over to Satan is for them to be drawn closer to God, right? If, 
if Satan was really the person we're handing them over to, Satan's not going to draw you closer to God. Satan's not going to make you a better Christian. He's going to try to draw you away from God. And in fact, in this verse here in 1 Timothy, the word that gets translated as learn is often the word that's used when you're talking about correcting children so that they can do things the proper way, that you're, you're correcting a misbehaving child so that they can act properly. This isn't some call for church discipline to be a process where when someone messes up that we somehow hand that person over to Satan. Because I mean, how weird would that be, right? Wouldn't it be weird if I'm standing up here on a Sunday morning and I'm like, well, it's come to attention that Trevor has done these horrible things. So I'm going to bring Trevor up here and now I'm going to do some ritual to summon Satan and be like, well, Satan, here's Trevor. Here you go, right? No, that's not what he's talking about. The thing is, is that Paul is saying that you need to remove that person, especially if they're in a position of authority, with the goal of correcting their behavior. Because when you give them correct behavior, the result is love. And how that is the most loving thing I could think of, is that you're taking somebody and you're putting them back into love. Somebody who is out of love. So what? So why study all this? Well, Again, I just want to emphasize our testimonies are our greatest tools. They will be the best way to share with people that we interact with. And it doesn't matter if your story is like super dramatic or not. God moving in your life in any way will touch somebody's life. I know when I was younger, I had this foolish thought of like, well, God, how are you going to use my testimony? It's not super dramatic or anything like that. But what I've learned is that was a really dumb thing for me to listen to, like, to think of. Because the fact is, is that God has changed my life and worked through it. And even, in way, even though it might not seem super dramatic and compared to some other people, it still has had an effect when I share it with other people. People resonate with some of the things God has done because people resonate when God changes somebody's life. We should be sharing that story often with the people around us because whenever we share our stories, it only builds up in us the, that knowledge of how God has blessed us. It's not only building the hearer, but it's building us as a sharer as well. And as we remember what God has done for us, it'll be much easier to have faith when we need to correct somebody. And it'll be much easier to do that with a good conscience because when we are remember, reminded of how much God loves us, it's very easy to show that love to other people. So just two questions to leave you guys with. First, what is your story? Think about that this week. What is your story? And who will you share it with this week? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that you are a God with perfect, unlimited patience who loves us, that as a people who constantly fight against you, that you are a heavenly father who just pours out your love upon us, who just wraps your loving arms around us. And I pray, I pray God, that we will be a people who will just be able to share that love with those around us, that we will be a people that will boldly share our stories, share the story of what you've done for us with the people around us, so that they might come to know you and have their own story of how you've done something for them. 
God, I just pray that in the hard times that we will just remember that great is your faithfulness. God, thank you so much for coming and being with us today. And I pray throughout the week that you will just continue to be with us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us be a people that shine brightly in a world that is dark. In your name, amen.